Each week in this series, we are beginning by standing together to say Psalm 23 together. Will you please stand? The 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell. Thank you. You may be seated. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. That's our life here. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's our life there. In the first week of this series, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, I told you that suffering asks three questions. Why me? How long? What do I do now? And we read Hosea chapter 6. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has wounded us, but he will bandage us. So let us know Let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn. And he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. And though we have times and seasons that are difficult in our lives, we learn that it's about this relationship that we have with him. And pursuing that relationship, it changes us, it deepens us. It calls the best out of us, even during the times that press us to the wall. There was a quote last week that has become one of my favorites. I always knew in principle that Jesus is all you need to get through, but you don't really know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Tim Keller observed, finally, as I grew in my understanding of the Bible itself, I came to see that the reality of suffering was one of its main themes. And we read Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. We looked at the difference between living to be happy or living to be holy. And I told you that Christianity, Christianity says, experience all the pain. Love answers everything. You're going somewhere else. And I concluded by looking with you at the three moments of suffering. Today we're talking about facing the furnace, and then next week we'll be walking with God in the furnace. Mother Teresa made a brilliant observation She said, do not think that love, in order to be genuine, has to be extraordinary. 
And then this line, this line is worth hanging on to. What we need is love without getting tired. What we need is love without getting tired. We need to love, we need to love, we need to love, we need to love. We need to face everything with love. Be faithful in small things, she wrote, because it is in them that your strength lies. And it's in those times when, when they're just hard. Things that you wrote on those cards that are difficult. It's in those times that we have to remember that it is in small things where we find God's strength in small moments and that what we need is love without getting tired. In my book, Altitude, I have a whole chapter about suffering and pain. It's called A Crash Course. We crash relationally. Relationships are unpredictable. The engagement is over. A marriage slides toward oblivion. A co-worker trashes you. A friend misrepresents what you said. Quite often, they don't turn out to be what we think they're supposed to be. A song laments. How can people, how can people be so heartless? How can people be so cruel? It doesn't make sense. We get caught in the vortex of relational messes, and we find ourselves crashing. We crash professionally. One minute, our career is going in a certain direction, and at the drop of a hat, it takes a nosediver, spins off into a black hole somewhere. Think about how many people woke up one day and went to work as they normally have for years, never suspecting anything would change. Like me, by the end of the day, nothing is ever the same again. No job. Hijacked. What's next? We crash emotionally. We don't know how to feel. What we feel, or if we'll ever feel better again. We hope we will rebound. But numbness sets in and dulls emotional resilience. We crash medically. A routine physical reveals the worst. An x-ray pulls back the curtain on an enemy lurking inside. Multiple medical interventions take you nowhere. A loved one's life hangs between the trapeze of life and death. Medical crashes usher us into the twilight zone of anxiety. We crash spiritually. We get lost along the way. We start out with great expectations following a God we thought was there for us. Then suddenly, we're in darkness. Out of the blue, everything we know goes poof. Like Thomas, we're not sure he's there. Deus absconditus, the God who is hidden, the God who is in the dark. Enter dark night of the soul, stage left. Elijah went through his spiritual crash in 1 Kings 19. Now it's your turn to cry out in anguish. And this story, this story of, of Elijah, he he confronted the crash of his life with great agony. And yet out of this crash came something new. And there's a, there's a pattern in this story. And if you can understand each turn of the pattern in this story, you can understand something significant that you can take into your life, into your moment where things are difficult. First Kings 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done. Now he had killed all the prophets with the sword. You see, if you go into 1 Kings 18, you see that, that Elijah had just had his moment. He had his, his 15 minutes of fame. He took the kingdom to its knees. He, he wiped out all these false prophets. 
His name was on the front page of the paper the next day. His picture, people wanted his autograph. He was the guy. But Jezebel was not a fan. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done. Now he had killed all the prophets with the sword. These were her prophets. These were her men. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. You think you can take down my kingdom? You think you can walk into my territory and obliterate it? I've got another thing coming for you, Elijah. You are going down. I'm taking you out. You have 24 hours and you will be gone. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. I'm done. Have you ever had that moment creep up on you suddenly and then just pounce on you? I'm done. I can't do this anymore. I can't, I can't take one more step. My life has just become one big overwhelming obstacle. I am done. It is over. And he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. When he awoke, the, the smell of fresh baked bread was in the air, and there was refreshing water there for him to take. But he was so exhausted, he fell asleep again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, strengthened by that food. He traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. So the angel comes back this second time and says, We're going a long way, Elijah. 40 days and 40 nights, you better eat something. This is going to be arduous, but we're going to get there, and you're going to be surprised what happens to you on the inside when we do get there. Imagine, what would you, what would you talk to this angel about on the way? Scholars and theologians tell us that in the Old Testament, when it says the angel of the Lord, that it actually means Jesus Christ. What do you talk to Jesus about? when you're walking for 40 days, when you have 40 nights camping out. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? It's not a deep theological question, is it? It's not even that confusing. It's pretty simple. It's pretty basic. What are you doing here, Elijah? And there's a question that is ensconced inside of that question. Where are you going, Elijah? How did you get here, Elijah? What are you doing here, Elijah? Where are you going, Elijah? And Elijah has had 40 days. He had a, a, a 
vacation with an angel. He had fresh bread and water in the middle of the wilderness. And this is, this is, what, he, this is what he says. I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. I don't want to do this anymore, God. I can't do this anymore, God. I refuse to do this anymore. All they do, I try to do good things. People want to hurt me. They killed everybody else, and now here it is. They want to kill me too. I quit. I'm done. Don't call me anymore, and I won't call you. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. The Lord doesn't get worried. He doesn't get sweaty palms. He just tells Elijah what he needs to do next. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And the, after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What's the voice going to say now? What are you doing here, Elijah? Why did God ask him the same question? He didn't really answer it the first time. He got all bent out of shape and everything. If you don't answer the question, God will ask you the question again. What are you doing here? How did you get here? Where are you going? God wants you to peel back the layers of your heart so you know who you are, where you are, and where it is that you're going in your life. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me too. I don't want to do this anymore. I quit. I won't do it anymore. Don't call me. I won't call you. It's over. What's God do then? The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel, Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael. And Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, the false god, the idol god, and whose mouths have not kissed him. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elisha didn't know his whole life was going to change that day. He was just out being a farmer, but his whole life is about to shift too. And in this story, you see this pattern. And this pattern relates to each and every one of our lives. Not only does God ask us this question at various times and places in our lives, especially when we're down and out or when we're pressed to the wall with something difficult happening in our lives, but God also gives you a track 
to run on, a track that puts your life on course again. First thing he says to, to Elijah is, Elijah, you've got a job to do. And he tells him exactly what to do. He reminds him, this is your job. This is your job description. You, you anoint kings. I send you places and you do what I ask you to do. How do you know what your job is? Your job is always defined by your gifts. Your job is always defined by what God has put in you to be able to do. What God is calling you to do. And sometimes you understand that over a period of time. Sometimes it takes somebody else interacting with your life in order for you to understand it. I remember when, when I went to see my professor in seminary, Dr. Hughes, and I was very confused, and I was pressed up against the wall, and I didn't know what I was supposed to do. And I said, Dr. Hughes, I do not want to be a pastor. I do not want to do that. But this is what I want to do. And I, I explained and described everything I wanted to do. And Dr. Hughes just looked at me, and he sort of looked through me, and then he said, Michael, you say you don't want to be a pastor, but everything that you describe about what you want to do is being a pastor. So here's your problem. You've got an idea in your mind of what you think a pastor is, and you don't want to be that. What you have to know is that God can call you to be a pastor in the way he has made you. And that shifted everything in my life in that moment, just like that. And God has a way of wiring you for what he wants you to do and what he wants you to be. And sometimes you might need somebody else to tell you that. If you need somebody else to, to tell you that, I'll tell you. Just come up and we'll talk and I'll tell you exactly. Because after a while you kind of get to see the gifts and the abilities and the patterns and, and what people are able to do. And there's so much to be done. There's so much that can be done. So the first part of God's program of restoration here is he tells Elijah, you got to go back and be who I made you to be. You got to do the things that I need you to do. The second thing he talks about is there are 7,000 in Israel who are not involved in false worship. They're not kissing idols and they're not worshiping idols. 7,000. What was Elijah saying? I'm alone. I'm the only one left. They're trying to kill me too. Elijah's made the mistake of trying to do it all by himself, trying to be a lone ranger Christian. Trying to, he wasn't a Christian. They didn't have Christianity back then. Sorry, I made a mistake. Please mark it down. Send it to the elders. Okay. So, so he, he, he was all alone trying to figure out his life. You can't figure out your life alone. It's so important to be connected at the heart level to other people who are trying to figure it out too. We talk about community, and we talk about, about being in a Bible study, a women's Bible study, a men's Bible study, uh, being in a small group. Christianity defined is always in community. Christianity defined is very, very relational. Now, it does not have to be multi, 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 multi relational. You can't have a relationship with 7,000 people. but You can have a relationship with seven people. A really good friend of mine the other day, had this question. He said, you know, I kind of, you know, I just don't know if I can be in a group and, you know, but I've got these friends and, and, and he and I have known each other for 55 years. That's how long we've known each other. And I said, look, you know me, we talk, 
you know, Joe, you talk. The whole group thing, the whole relationship thing is all about this. It's always been about this. It's never not been about this. It's all about accountability. It's all about we have people who will hold us accountable to live the way we say we want to live. 1 John 2, 6, if we say we believe in him, we should walk in the same way that he walked. That's all it's ever been about. If you're in a women's Bible study, a men's Bible study, a small group, it's always and forever been about accountability. So if you have accountability with a couple people, you are living out your life at the heart level in community with others. First God says, look, you got a job to do. I wired you this way to do what I've asked you to do. Next, you got to do it with some other people. You can't just be this lone ranger guy out there. I'm not going to supply you with Tonto. You've got to do this all by yourself, which wasn't a very good movie, by the way, with Johnny Depp. But anyway, so Elijah went out from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. This guy's farming, and Elisha goes out there and taps him on the shoulder. He says, you're, you're coming with me now. Because God tells him, everything that I taught you, you're going to teach him. Which is like a big, should be like a big flashing light to Elijah. This is like, at some point, Elijah, you're done. And, but my work never gets done, so I'm going to, we've got to download everything into this guy Elisha so that he will carry on after you are gone. We call this today mentoring. We call it kind of putting our arm around somebody younger and, and leading them down the, the path that God has, has outlined for them. It's the same thing. It's the same idea. We just hired a 24-year-old guy from Orange County, California, a surfer guy named Zach. He's going to be here in a month. He's going to be our new student ministry director. Zach is awesome. Zach is, is dangerous. Zach has a big mustache. Zach is amazing. And I'm going to put my arm around Zach. I'm real excited because he's only 24 and I'm 64. I'm going to put my arm around him. I'm going to say, Zach, let's talk, man. Zach, let's, let's do this. Let's think like this. Let's, what are we doing here? What are we doing there? And it's going to be amazing. And the reason I'm going to put my arm around him, the reason he's dangerous at 24 is because you know and I know that he doesn't know anything. He's 24. <laughs> he's got a master's degree in theology which with two bucks, you can maybe go to Starbucks, maybe not, and buy a cup of coffee. But here's the real deal. I was 24, and I, was, I wish I should have brought my picture when I was 24 here. It's hilarious. I was 24, and, and I knew at that point that I knew everything, and I knew nothing. And so knowing that, I just want to wrap my arm around this guy, Zach. He's a great guy. He's an amazing guy. He's going to do an amazing job here. But he needs somebody to wrap his arm around him and walk with him for a while. And this is what God's design is. His design is that you live out the way you're wired. His design is you do this at the heart level with some other people in, in community and fellowship. And community and fellowship isn't always sweetsy-cutesy. Sometimes it's really hard. Sometimes it's messy. But that's the only way it works. And you're going to mentor some people with everything I've taught you. You're going to pass that on. To others. Tim Keller wrote, suffering is an important way to grow. People who have not suffered much are often shallow, 
unacquainted with both their weaknesses and strengths, naive about human nature and life, and almost always fragile and unresilient. But we know that suffering does not deepen and enrich us automatically. An old saying goes, the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. And so the same traumatic experience can ruin one person and make another person stronger and even happier. How can we handle suffering in a way that leads to growth? And that's what God is doing here with Elijah. He's handling his suffering in a way that will grow him, in a way that will make him a better Elijah in the future. What are you doing here, Elijah? Where did you come from, Elijah? Where are you going, Elijah? Keller writes, a Job-type suffering requires a process of honest prayer and crying. The hard work of deliberate trust in God and what St. Augustine calls a reordering of our loves. What we need is love without getting tired. I want to show you a picture. These are my grandparents on my mother's side. They came over to this country sometime about 1895. That's Pasquale on the left. They called him Pat. That's Brigida on the right, my grandmother. She called herself Mary because she didn't like Brigida. And so she was always married to everybody. I didn't get to know my grandfather too well. He passed away when I was about 10 or 11. But I knew my grandmother very, very well. She was a woman who loved and never got tired. And, and they went through hardship. They came to this country with nothing. They struggled. They tried to build a life and eke out a, an existence. And then the depression came and they were crushed. And this house that she was buying, she lost the house. And um, my grandmother loved me in a way that, that saved my childhood. My grandmother loved me in a way that I knew that I was always safe with her. And there they are smiling away. You, you cannot see all the suffering and all the pain that they went through. And when she lost her beloved Pasquale to cancer and had to go the rest of the way on her own, she did it with grace. She wore black for the rest of her life, but never stopped smiling, never stopped kissing me, never stopped making me lunch whenever I showed up in her apartment. And, and that's just a picture of, of endurance and, and growing, even in the middle of hard times and suffering in life. What we need is love without getting tired. There are some demands that the furnace puts on us. Some demands that the furnace puts on us. The first one is it demands confusion because when the, the heat goes on, just like in Elijah's life, we get confused real fast and then it, it demands anguish and you, you, you heard anguish in Elijah's cry. I, I'm not going to do this anymore. They killed everybody. They're trying to kill me too. It requires physical and spiritual support. Elijah had to have bread and water. Elijah had to have encouragement. Elijah needed a 40-day walk with an angel. It requires a plan. God starts to lay out the plan for Elijah. You're gonna, I wired you, and 
there's some people you got to connect with, and there's a guy named Elisha. I want you to put your arm around him, and it requires action. Elijah had to move into that, which then created a new reality. And in the new reality of our lives, there are always two questions. Who am I now? And what did I learn? Who am I now? And what did I learn? And that is the gift that comes out of the crash. That is the gift that comes out of the, the pain and the suffering. Who am I now? Who am I now? What did I learn? James puts it this way. Chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. The testing of your faith. Why me? Why now? How long? Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. God is never going to miss a beat with you, and he's going to grow you, he's going to stretch you, he's going to conform you to the image of his son who suffered so much for you and me so that we can know him and that we can live forever. We change the world when we suffer with dignity. We change the moment when we embrace pain and suffering with integrity. And the real secret of all this is that God said, you've got to do this together. You were never meant to do it alone. Always, always, always do it with each other and for each other, praying with each other, celebrating with each other, walking with each other, grieving with each other. What we need is love without getting tired. Dear Heavenly Father, we have looked at this story in Elijah, and in that story we can see ourselves. We can see moments of discouragement, moments of heartache, moments of pain and suffering, moments of grief and loss. And yet, Father, we also see the redemption that comes when we walk with you. We see you having wired us for something, wanting to continue to use us. We see that we can connect at the heart level with others and really do life together in a real way, not a perfect way, Father, but in a messy kind of real way. And, and Father, we see that you have given us opportunities to wrap our arms around some younger folks and walk with them as they grow and as they develop in their understanding of life. Oh, Father, guide us through the furnace. Oh, Father, guide us in all these things that we wrote down on cards today for ourselves and for others. May we see the light of the glory of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. May we see that and embrace that as a treasure in a jar of clay. Heavenly Father, take us now. In Jesus' name.